if I'm a patient who comes from a certain type of background, I want a healthcare provider who understands who I am, where I've come from, and why I look at the world the way that I look at the world. Hey everyone, this is Brian Pelletier, and welcome to Extraordinary, the Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Hey, hey, extraordinaires. Join me in this episode as I talk with Dr. Jennifer Adams, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Clinical Associate Professor at Idaho State University School of Pharmacy. Prior to returning to Idaho, Dr. Adams served as Senior Student Affairs Advisor at the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, as well as the Associate Director of Student Affairs at the American Pharmacists Association Academy of Students of Pharmacy. Hello. How are you? How's it going? It's good. How are you? Not bad. Jen, thanks so much for taking the time and having this conversation with me. And so I'm really excited that we get to, to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So to start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to? Sure. I am currently the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Idaho State University College of Pharmacy. So I have an administrator role, but I'm also a faculty member. I teach pharmacy law to our third-year students and our first-year students as well. And then I also do a little bit of research um, predominantly in the area of scholarship of teaching and learning, which I know it's not a common place that people think about research, but kind of the more idea of educational research. So that's what I'm currently up to. But historically in my career, I've had a couple of different roles, um, predominantly more in the association management space. I worked in the student development department at APHA for a number of years. So I worked with all the APHA ASP student chapters, um, did a lot of educational programming for the students at the MRMs and the annual meetings, um, leadership development, and then I was also responsible for all of the co-curricular learning that happened at APHA ASP with the patient care projects and the National Patient Counseling Competition, some of those sorts of things. So that's really where my, I like to say my academic career started was in the more co-curricular space. And then I went from there to work at the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, where I uh, worked in student affairs and I oversaw the Centralized Application Service, FarmCast, the PCAT, the committee that helped provide the blueprint for that, um, as well as supported all the associate deans for student affairs at all of the colleges. So yeah, it's been a really interesting career the last uh, 14 years, I guess. Yeah, and it seems like we sort of got our start in a similar place with ASP, and, and that seems to be a, a natural progression for what you did right from graduating. Yeah, so you and I, I think we met when we were students, right? Like I was still a student, you were still a student. Um, we were both on, the name of the committee has changed. It's now the <laughs> Communication Standing Committee. You know, we're a little older, so it was publications, I think, back in the day. But having that leadership experience as a student was, I think, really valuable for both of us and probably has been something that helped influence our careers for sure. And so you mentioned the research piece a little bit earlier. So you also have your doctorate in education mm -hmm. that you, you got from GW. And can you tell me a little bit more about some of the research that you're doing with learning styles or with learning in general? So um, while I worked at AACP, um, I did get my doctorate in education. It's focused in higher education administration. There are different 
different areas that you can focus in. And so given my background and given where I was thinking I wanted my career to go, higher ed administration seemed to make the most sense. And so I started doing admissions research for my dissertation for my doctoral program and have continued in that space, generally looking at, at things from a big picture national level. So my dissertation looked at healthcare related experience and if it contributes to success in pharmacy school. You know, a lot of our colleges either require or strongly recommend, um, which ultimately means require right. that type of healthcare related experience prior to pharmacy school. And um, I wanted to see if it actually mattered for students in, in the PharmD program. And uh, spoiler alert, it actually doesn't <laughs> really, it's not a predictor of success uh, in pharmacy school. So I think those sorts of things are, are really important to look at. I've also done some research that was just recently published looking at students' um, socioeconomic status in the applicant pool and um, how we view that as a potential diversity characteristic. You know, if, if we look at the way that our class is made up, that we're admitting into a college of pharmacy, we want people from various different socioeconomic statuses, different race and ethnicity, different backgrounds. So, you know, there's all of those potentials. And so some really interesting uh, information out of that that shows that there are people that are academically qualified who, if we view that as a positive characteristic, that potentially could be successful in pharmacy school that are not being admitted currently. Um, kind of exciting stuff there. And then, you know, a couple of other things around um, different types of electives and if electives influence career choice for students. So lots of different irons in the fire all the time. <laughs> yes, it definitely seems that way. And you had mentioned diversity and it was actually something I wanted to touch on as well. So you've done a little bit of work involving diversity and inclusion and what well, we can understand that there's still a work in progress to, to make some, some change in that. But I was curious what you've seen over the last couple of years or several years and has there been any improvement or, or changes in that space? Yeah, so I think that's kind of a, an interesting space and it's, it's a space that it's sometimes difficult to quantify for people what diversity actually means. Um, I think a lot of times when people think of diversity, they just think of race and ethnicity, but diversity is so much more than that. You could be a first-generation college student. You could be somebody from a different socioeconomic background. You could be somebody who um, has had a history personally of different types of illness, right? Some that are obvious, you know, that you might come in with a, a physical disability that's obvious. <clears throat> and then there's others that aren't as obvious. You know, it might not be as apparent to your classmates. You as a student came from a lower socioeconomic background or a higher socioeconomic background based on where you're at today. So all of those experiences and all of those different characteristics are what make us unique. And one of the things that I know admissions officers across academic pharmacy have been working towards is more of a holistic review process in terms of who we admit into colleges of pharmacy. So it's not just your grades, not just your GPA, not just your PCAT score in terms of what makes you a good student. Um, you might have experiences that you've had to overcome to get to where you are, which shows a certain level of motivation, shows a certain level of resilience and perseverance that you can 
if you put your mind to it, accomplish anything. And so when we think about who we want in our colleges of pharmacy, those are all things that are, are important characteristics to consider, but they're also difficult sometimes to quantify. They're sometimes difficult to measure. And so those are, that's kind of where I've gone in terms of the research that I've been interested in is how do we help quantify? How do we help develop so that admissions officers very easily can look at the information provided and say, wow, this person's great. Their grades might not be perfect, but they're going to really add value to our class because of their background and their experience. And so I think that brings up a good point, not only from interviewing for pharmacy school, but normal job interviews as well. And those are some characteristics, resiliency, perseverance, that are certainly hard to, to measure and quantify, as you're saying. And so I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you're able to identify those specific characteristics? Yeah, I know a lot of pharmacy schools will use the interview process to evaluate some of those more subjective applicant characteristics. I know at my college, we use the multiple mini interview. Um, it's a type of interview process that's been researched and validated to remove bias from the interview process. Um, and it's short, very specific, sometimes task-oriented or topic-oriented interviews um, where you move from station to station you know, with different experiences. For example, one is about teamwork. Um, and you might be paired up with another student. You're sitting back to back. One student has a connects piece and the other student has a picture of what that's supposed to look like. And you have to communicate to each other and describe and help them get there. And we're really assessing their level of teamwork and the way that they're able to communicate with each other. So looking at some of those different characteristics in that way. So sometimes I'm sure there are applicants who feel like some of those activities are a little torturous, but really we're, <laughs> we're trying to be able to assess some of those things that make an applicant a complete person. Um, because we've learned that just being smart doesn't make a good pharmacist, right? You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to have those interpersonal skills. So all of these diversity characteristics are important because of how we want to be able to train people to become pharmacists, to be able to understand where other people are coming from and their perspectives, but also because of, um, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm hoping that most people have heard the term health equity, you know, from the perspective of if I'm a patient who comes from a certain type of background, I want a healthcare provider who understands who I am, where I've come from, and why I look at the world the way that I look at the world. Um, and sometimes it's a lot easier if that person looks like me, is from a neighborhood like mine. So the more we can be diverse in who we admit, who we graduate, then we're more likely to be able to solve some of our health disparities that exist out there in our communities. Thank you. That was, that's a great point about health equity. I'm glad you brought that in a little bit too. And, and I think you touched on some of these as well, but to maybe expand a little bit more, when when you're looking at leadership skills that students need to develop to have a, a meaningful contribution to the healthcare profession, what are some of the things that, that you're looking at for students to work on? Well, I think there's, if you ask 10 people, you'd probably get 10 very different answers <laughs> to that question. Um, so I'm going to give one that I think hopefully will help um, an individual student to begin to think about what they want to develop. And I think about it in this way because of my own personal experience. 
So when I started pharmacy school, I had a very clear path of what I wanted to do. I was gonna be a critical care pharmacist. I had experience working as a pharmacy technician in a hospital. Um, I really played a role um, as a technician in an ICU. And so I had this clear path, right? I was gonna go to pharmacy school, I was gonna do a PGY-1 and then a PGY-2 in critical care. And I had this plan. And then when I was in school, I was exposed to a number of different things, including possibilities of working in association management. And I began to really realize as I got towards the end of my education that I have skills and I have attributes for me personally that not all of my classmates had um, and that not all pharmacists have generally, right? So I'm a little bit of an odd bird in the pharmacy space. Um, I can, you know, I'm fine in terms of the academics, but that I had these other qualities um, that not everybody else had. And so if I was going to go in the path I originally thought, I probably wouldn't have been able to develop those particular qualities that I recognize in myself as unique. So when you think about leadership characteristics, self-awareness is a huge component of that. So what is it about you that makes you unique? And what are your strengths that you can potentially develop as you move throughout your career? And so I think a lot of that is about knowing who you are and knowing what your strengths are and knowing how you can use those strengths to be able to be the type of leader that you wanna be in your community, to be able to be the type of pharmacist that you wanna be. The more aware we are about ourselves and the more aware we are about our strengths and the more we can find opportunities to develop those, the better off we'll be. All right. One of the things that I think would be interesting to talk about is what are some of those specific strengths that you do have? And, and the way that I am looking at it is if there's someone seeing you at your best, what are the characteristics that, that they're seeing? Yeah. So when I first started in my position at AACP, um, one of the things that's important at that organization is that we learn about what our strengths are and we begin to develop them. Um, and so I was able at that point to be able to do an assessment and there's lots of different names for it. Strengths Finder, Strengths Quest, Gallup, but there's uh, Strengths Finder 2.0, I think is one of the more recent, the most recent book. Um, so to be able to do that type of an assessment is I think really important. And within that assessment, if you do the full assessment, there's I believe 34 different characteristics that it tells you which are your top five um, what are your, you know, top 10? What are the things that you really excel at and do well at? And so I think one of the things that I've noticed about myself is within those 34 um, different characteristics, they can be grouped into different categories. Um, and there's a bit of research out there that shows that pharmacists in the categories that those are grouped into, pharmacists tend to fall in some very specific categories. Um, strategic, more implementation, relationship building is one of the others that's there. Um, sometimes they'll have maybe one of their top five characteristics that'll fit there. Um, but the one that pharmacists generally don't fit in is the category called influencing. Um, and so there's these types of characteristics that tend to be more on the influencing side. I've helped teach uh, a leadership elective here at our college and we've talked about, you know, who do you want on your team? Do you want to have a balanced team where you have people with characteristics that fall into all four of those categories? Or do you want 
people to be, you know, kind of more one side or the other. Um, four of my five are influencing and one is relationship building. Um, so like I said, I, I, for whatever reason, knew I was different even when I was graduating from pharmacy school. And so I would say one of the things that we need in the profession of pharmacy is more people who have developed those influencing strengths. We're really good at preaching to the choir and talking about how great we are um, to each other, but the rest of the healthcare team might not be as aware. We aren't always as good for advocating for ourselves as we, we could be. And so we need more influencers. Um, we need a little bit better balance, I think, in terms of those characteristics. And I think there was an article in October where you were talking about a lot of the, the great changes that are happening in Idaho State. Mm -hmm. And and I think it ties right back into influencing and, and pharmacists making changes that will improve the health of, of the people that we serve. Can you talk a little bit about the, the article that you wrote and some of the changes that you're seeing in Idaho? Yeah. So I didn't actually write the article. I was just interviewed for it as part of Pharmacy Today. Um, one of a couple of people that were, were interviewed to put together this article to talk about some of the big changes that are happening in the state of Idaho. And I guess for some of your listeners who maybe aren't as aware, in the state of Idaho in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of advancements that have really been able to expand the scope of practice for pharmacists. And many of those have happened because of the persistence of our Board of Pharmacy, um, but also because of some of the strengths from some of our lawmakers and legislators in the state of Idaho, and from the support of you know, our state pharmacy associations and the College of Pharmacy. And so what's happened over the last couple of years is that we've had pharmacists in the state who have brought forward ideas um, for things that they felt like if pharmacists could prescribe these things independently, that we could provide more access to more patients for potentially life-saving medications. So one example is epi-auto injectors, that there was a pharmacist who brought up the idea to our board of pharmacy that it would be nice if pharmacists could independently prescribe epi-auto injectors because if a patient comes in and knows that they need an epi-auto injector, um, needs to have one on hand, it's important that they have the ability to get access to that life-saving, potentially life-saving medication. And so there was a bill that was proposed and our state legislators passed uh, a statute, most people also know as a law, um, allowing pharmacists to independently prescribe epi-auto injectors. And there's a number of different things that pharmacists in the state of Idaho can prescribe that are in statute that are specific pieces of legislation passed by legislators. But one of our legislators took a step back and said, is this the most efficient way that we can do this? Or is there not a better way for us to be able to allow pharmacists to independently prescribe things that help provide better access to our rural communities, which we have a lot of in Idaho, um, a lot of medically underserved communities, where sometimes the pharmacy is the only healthcare provider access that those patients have for 50 to 100 miles. So there's definitely some, some places in our state where the pharmacist is the only healthcare provider that these communities are, are ever having access to without having to have to drive for at least an hour or more to be able to get to see someone. So they're looking at it from this perspective of how do we provide the access to the care that's needed, but how do we do this a little bit more efficiently so that we're not coming back specific medication by specific medication or medication class 
um, to the legislature. Um, and so our legislature passed um, what's called House Bill 191, which allows the Board of Pharmacy to determine in their rulemaking process what pharmacists can prescribe independently. And they put some parameters around that. So it has to be conditions that are minor and self-limiting and you know, really has to be things that are more within the scope of practice for pharmacists. Um, rather than, you know, we're gonna make diagnoses and perform brain surgery in the pharmacy, that's not right. really where they wanted to go. <laughs> um, but it was very, very kind of specific and gave some guidance to the Board of Pharmacy. So the way that that works is when state legislature passes a statute or a law, um, they'll have state agencies that will, in their rulemaking process, provide more structure. So um, a perfect example of that is continuing education. Our state legislature has said that pharmacists need to have continuing education. So our state board of pharmacy says, yes, and you need to show every year that you've had 15 hours specifically. So now we have a chapter in our law book, um, chapter four, um, in the rule book for the board of pharmacy that says what pharmacists can prescribe independently. So I think that's a perfect example of where you have to know both the statutes and the rules to really be able to practice because we do still have some things that were passed in statute that allow pharmacists to prescribe certain things independently. And then we also have this chapter four in the Board of Pharmacy rule book. So that's been a really great thing um, and provided a lot of opportunities for um, pharmacists in our communities to be leaders and to provide evidence and show that it's safe um, and effective for pharmacists to do some of these things. And we definitely had a, quite a few different pharmacists from different practice settings that testified in front of our state legislature. Persistence was also key in that we definitely had some pushback from some of the other um, health professions who felt like maybe this was stepping on their toes a little bit in terms of scope of practice and they were concerned um, about the safety. So persistence with providing the evidence um, that it is safe and effective for pharmacists to prescribe independently some of these things. But it was a really great, great way to watch exactly how, how our country works in terms of the different powers of the legislature and the state agencies and ultimately the outcome is that it's better for our patients because they have better access to care. Yeah, it certainly sounds that pharmacists are in a unique position within the state. And because there's more rural areas that patients don't have any face-to-face -face interaction with other healthcare providers and pharmacists are more or less the, the first line of defense in some of these situations. And, and so you also brought up a unique challenge that that I think most states are struggling with, and that's the influencing of other healthcare professionals and trying to not tread on other people's turf and trying to find that balance between what's better for the patients and improving patient care, but allowing people to practice based on the, the, the degree and license that they have. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that's really important for colleges of pharmacy is that we <clears throat> make sure that we are incorporating interprofessional education into what we do because so much of our practice overlaps in different areas with other healthcare providers. So one of the the core components of interprofessional education is that students learn with, from, and about each other. And so you can learn where does our scope overlap 
where can we potentially use the most effective, cost-effective person <clears throat> to provide this service? And what, what do I provide to the team that's unique? What makes me different from everybody else on the healthcare team? Um, and so that's where I think this idea of interprofessional practice versus interprofessional education, do we educate them and hope that they begin to implement it when they go out and practice? Do they have to be able to see it out in practice? So the, the interesting part about interprofessional education and interprofessional practices that the approach nationally has kind of been the chicken and the egg, that there are advancements within interprofessional practice and the way that team-based care is provided, but then we're also focusing on the educational side and helping to train students interprofessionally so that they understand you know, these scope of practice issues. I don't know that they'll ever completely go away, but hopefully in the future, we will, as a healthcare team, be able to look at things a little bit more objectively. And, and I know we're winding up on, on our time. I don't want to take too much of your, your morning. And, and so I was wondering, going back a little bit to, to leadership, and when you think of someone with great leadership, who is it and what specifically comes to mind? One of my mentors, and, then, and initially, I, if I'm really honest, the first time I met him, I was kind of awestruck, is Joe DiPero. Uh, the first time I met him was, of course, very welcoming and very nice. But all I could think in my head was, oh, my gosh, I carried around your big book for you know four years of pharmacy school. But he's just such a genuine person, and he genuinely cares about helping people succeed in their careers. And that was evident from the first time that I met him. And I think one of the strengths that he has is that he's able to recognize in other people, other uh, their characteristics that are their strengths. Um, maybe that those folks don't see in themselves, but that he's able to say, wow, you know, you're really great at that. And he does it in a very quiet way. He's uh, generally kind of a quiet person. If he speaks up in a meeting, He's got something important to say because he generally doesn't just, you know, talk a lot. And so that's, you know, a characteristic of being able to recognize strengths in others, but also being able to recognize the strengths that you need for a complementary team to be able to bring together a group of folks that can complement each other and be stronger together than any of them would be individually. I think a lot of times, you know, we think of the great leaders in pharmacy and for me, Joe DePero is definitely one of those. And I think there's a lot of people that would agree with me on that. But for him to be someone who is a great leader, but then recognizes that he's more effective and he's stronger, if he can bring together a team of complementary leaders. So I think that's there's huge benefit in that. And in recognizing that the people that you surround yourself can really help you to succeed and excel beyond what you ever imagined on your own. Well, I think on that note, that is a perfect place to end. And Jen, again, I really appreciate your time and thank you for having this conversation. Absolutely. Anytime. That concludes our show. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for being extraordinary.